Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 49 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today's guest is Jennifer Khan Bakula. She's an author and professional genealogist, and she sits on the board of directors for the Association of Professional Genealogists. Well, welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it. So you know our favorite question as genealogists is, how did you get started in genealogy? What sparked that interest for you? You know, I have a lot of origin stories, quite a few, okay. in fact. I think the most important one, though, is that both sides of my family, my mother's side and my father's side, they were very aware of their family history. It was not unusual to have dinner conversations with the extended family and to have it devolve into somebody saying, now whose aunt was she? And then somebody would start to draw a chart and we'd trade stories and things like that. And so I kind of grew up in that environment. Mm. One of the biggest things I think that helped me to become a genealogist and a writer was that we went to a library that was closing down and they were selling some of their books. I must have been seven or eight. And my parents said, oh, look at these orange, they were these little orange biographies. Mm -hmm. And they bought for me maybe 15 of those. And Mm. I just devoured them. They were mostly presidents and famous people. It is not unusual to find one of those, and I have a few in my house and my parents do, and tucked in the back is a little chart where I have drawn the genealogy out. I think that's what really got me started realizing that I was interested in people's stories Mm -hmm. and interested in how they fit into families. And Mm -hmm. later, I became a writer of obituaries at a Mm. newspaper chain. And sometimes I like to think about it that I just am writing big, long obituaries all the time. I think, you know, biography and obituaries have a lot in common. You know, one Mm -hmm. is short and the other is long, but it's the same kind of thing of wanting to really capture a life and capture the details and the color in a life, not just the Mm -hmm. names and the dates. And that's what got me started with that. Well, that's cool. I like to hear you say that, not just the names and the dates, because I talk about that all the time. But with your family, since you have such, uh, your your parents were into family history, into genealogy, what interesting stories have you discovered or remember about your own family? On my mother's side of the family, we have Walter Jones, and that's her grandfather. And he gets talked about a lot in my family, and he's sort of a celebrity. He was, he grew up in Wales. He went to seminary in England and then came to the United States and Canada. And he worked as a minister in many places in the United States and Canada. And he was also a poet. 
the congregations that he served in North America were mostly Welsh congregations. So he was preaching in English and in Welsh, and mm. the Welsh community was very alive, and he was very much a part of it. And one thing that they have is called an Eisteddfod, mm. which is a festival for literary and musical and, and people come together for these. It's a big event. It's kind of a big Welsh conference. And mm -hmm. he was, he submitted a poem at the 1921 Astefad in Toronto and he won. And the prize was a humongous oak chair with engravings on it in Welsh and, and the Welsh dragon. And wow. it is spectacular. So he won that. He passed it down to his surviving son, my grandfather, and it was in a box for a long time. They took it apart and it was in a box. And my grandfather mm -hmm. one day decided he was going to resurrect this chair. And he did. And it went from him to my uncle. And now it is in my home. Um, cool. And I have, a, I have a new granddaughter and she just crawled up on it the other day. And it's so oh. big that she just looked really tiny. She kind of sat in the corner of it. But mm -hmm. it's a real family treasure. And it reminds us of, of where we've come from. It's something mm -hmm. that I really cherish in my house. And so in your family, since you guys have these stories, are you the only person that's really the genealogist or are there other members of your family that join you in your love for genealogy? My parents both are very interested in it. Mm -hmm. And my mother in particular, she, I will often say, hey, do you want to go? She grew up in Rome, New York, and, and this is where her mm -hmm. parents kind of met they did meet there and she loves to take a trip up there with me and research things and look at gravestones and things like that and when I started out as a genealogist the first thing I did was write a family book and she was very much a part of helping me do that mm -hmm. and my father's genealogy is mostly New Jersey and he I, I talk to him about it a lot and, and that side of the family has a big mystery. So I keep him posted and he's very interested in hearing what I've found out because I'm getting closer and closer to solving the mystery. Well, of course, I want to ask you, what's the mystery? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a death certificate. We have an incorrect death certificate. The okay. Um, okay. couple on the, on the certificate is not the right couple. And this, and this affects a lot. So I'm trying to figure out who the correct couple is. We'll okay. see if I ever do it. Well, hopefully you'll write about it or publish something because I think that would be a great lesson for folks that are doing genealogy. Oh, you bet. I will. <laughs> if I ever good. solve it, it's going to be a big deal. Good, good. Um, so what tips would you give someone who's starting to research immigrant ancestors? I think that, you know, I'm not an expert on immigration in particular. I think Rich Venezia is the one that knows all about the records and how to, how to really work that whole system. When I think about immigration, I am mostly interested in the trip. I have done a lot of research that involves boats and trains and wagon trails. I'm interested in the boat. I'm interested in what kind of wagon did they have? How mm -hmm. did they get from here to there? And it's so exciting because there's so much out there to learn about travel that I think often I will read about uh, genealogy and somebody will say, well, she left Italy on this date and came to Ellis Island on this date, and then she lived in New York. And that, 
that little two sentence couplet to me just screams out for information. I'm really very interested in how the trip occurred, what happened, what it might have been like. Mm-hmm. I I was shocked to find two two things that I was researching recently. I went through newspapers and mm-hmm. found that before the person made the trip, there was an ad in the newspaper advertising the exact trip that they made. And um, that's just exciting. You think, wow, maybe they just read it in the paper and said, let's go. I guess the other piece of advice I have is, and particularly this is for people who live in the United States and are researching an immigrant, do your work in the United States before you go taking an airplane to Ireland. Because I hear so often people get to the place of their origin and they spend Mm -hmm. the whole time online on websites that they could have looked up back here in America. It just, the do it... And I think you can't be more thorough than to do your research here on the ground mm-hmm. in the in the destination country before you try to really look up your roots elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So as a genealogist, do you create a research plan for like the wagon train intrigued me when you said that? Because I was like, I wouldn't even know how to research that. So do you create a, like a plan uh, when you start doing a new project? Sometimes. Sometimes I... I let it take me where it goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really, I look for the characters in the story that aren't human. So the boat would be one of those. And I Mm -hmm. have found out so much about different boats and routes of travel. But also in my own family, there is a grocery store that's a character in the story. This family lived in a big house and three of the people worked at the local grocery store and they got Mm. all of their food from there and the men were all butchers and they went to Philadelphia in the morning and they drove the groceries to New Jersey to sell and that grocery store was a part of their world and I Mm -hmm. think that what I try to do is see the situation quickly and then identify are there characters in the story that aren't human sometimes the character is an event Sometimes it's World War II or it's uh, the Civil War or whatever it is, or it's a big migration. I mean, that that happens all the time, that that's the character in the story is you have this huge migration from here to there for whatever reason. So I tend to do that. Sometimes, though, I do lay out a research plan, and mostly that's driven. I'm a big write-as-you-go person, so sometimes that's driven just kind of by the outline. I'll, I'll... outline my story. And then I just make notes to myself, okay, I need to go here. I need to go there. I need to find these things out. So, so I guess it's a little bit of both, but Mm -hmm. I love going down rabbit holes. I think sometimes you find the best, the best stories and the best color down a rabbit hole. Don't we all love rabbit holes? Uh, That's for (laughs) sure. So Jennifer, let's get into writing because you write a lot, I'm assuming. And so I think writing, writing my first book, and was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And that's saying a lot since I went to law school. And so I really kind of want for the listeners to understand sort of how do you, what's your writing process? What inspired you to write? Um, have you written things? I know you've written obituaries, but other things outside of, or do you plan to write things outside of your own family history? Just kind of give us a little bit of um, kind of your career in writing, I would say. I think I was a writer before I was a genealogist. 
Okay. And I always writing was always the thing that I would manage to excel at. I I liked to take those classes where the paper was the final product and not the test. Uh, I just preferred to be that way. I worked for several years as the editor of several newspapers at a chain of newspapers that produced weekly publications. And boy, did I learn how to write quickly and on deadline and type quickly. That was a really formative experience. And so I got good at being succinct and at producing a lot of material quickly. So I uh, spent, uh, after those years, I spent 20 years as a mother. And when I was ready for another career after that, I was very interested in genealogy. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, should I be a genealogist or should I really pursue writing? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I didn't realize right away that I could do both, but it really mm-hmm. is the marriage of, of two things that I love to do. I was just going to ask you, kind of get into a little bit more of your writing process, right? Because I think it's really hard when you're starting to write. You know, for me, I start with an outline maybe, and then sometimes I'll just, you know, write longhand, but it's kind of like, how do you manage all of that? Because you can do little bits and pieces, but how do you make the final product come together? I I have what I think might seem a little bit unconventional, but it works really well for me and the kind of writing that I do. I dive in right away. Uh, there is no blank page. As soon as I have an idea of what I'm writing about, I start by just writing. This is what I'm going to write about. And there, it's on the page. And now we're done with the blank page. And then I, I expand from there. I tend to write things from the inside out. I start with very small pieces of information. I use complete sentences and paragraphs, and I might write the story of one document, and then I add another document to that, and another document, and I build evidence around it. From mm-hmm. that, I, ta- I stand back and say, how does this flow as a story? Am I covering everything that I want to cover? And I sort of form an outline as I go. Mm-hmm. And about a third of the way into the process, I commit to a real outline and say, okay, mm-hmm. this is actually what I'm going to be writing about. And then I add to that in a more deliberate way. But mm-hmm. at first, I sort of let the information guide me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sometimes if I have a book that someone has assigned me, I don't have that luxury. I start with an outline. Um, but if it's something that that I'm doing and it's, and it's my idea. That's what I tend to do. I, I kind of let it take me where it goes for a little while. And then I get serious about outlining it out. I am not a person who does the research and then writes it up. That is just to me, for me personally, personally, a, a recipe for insanity. And, Maybe and that's I think- why I'm insane. Cause I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I wonder sometimes when people say to me, that's their process, I I wonder whether they get everything written that they want to write, because I can see how Mm -hmm. that process can break down pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you just feel overwhelmed with all of your research. Mm -hmm. And this way, even though I often feel overwhelmed at the end of a, you know, toward the end of a project, this way, that I think that comes late in the process when I'm fully committed rather than in the beginning before I've started writing seriously. 
And that keeps me feeling organized and in control of it. I feel very strongly also about not writing from notes. I do not just make little notes. I write complete sentences out. And often in the editing process, those sentences hit the trash. But, you know, I think that write, that, that all writers need as much practice as, as they can get. Oh, and absolutely. I always look at it as, as I'm writing, I'm learning, I'm practicing, and I'm when you write a complete sentence, it forces you to know whether you really, really understand what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. And often, if I take notes, I find that I say, okay, here are the notes. But when I convert those to complete sentences, I say, oh, well, this is missing. I, mm-hmm. I didn't have this little piece of it. So then I go back to writing sentences to make sure that I've got all of the pieces in there. Mm-hmm. And so as we're talking about writing, obviously, genealogy and research reports, perhaps, or books, sort of what advice would you give someone that's interested in becoming a professional genealogist Because based on your experiences? I'm on the board of directors at the Association of Professional Genealogists. And I'll have to say that one of the reasons I'm excited about doing that is because APG really helped me to get the idea of what it was like to be a professional. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a conversation going on and there's, there's a community there that is so helpful and so supportive. Most genealogists are on their own in terms of coming up with an education plan for themselves and coming up with a learning mm-hmm. plan for themselves. And I think that, that APG is so good in being a guide for getting involved in that The other thing I think is conferences, even if you go to one a year or you just pick something that's easy to go to, those are, those are vital. I Mm -hmm. just talking to other genealogists, finding out what they're doing. I often sit down at a conference and turn to the person next to me who I've never met and say, what are you working on? And it always ends up being the best conversation. I always end up learning so much. I think also when I started out, I kind of said yes to everything. I really Mm -hmm. kept my horizons very, very broad. Mm -hmm. And I didn't start to hone in and specialize on anything too soon. And I think there was a little bit of pressure to do that. What Mm -hmm. is your specialty? What is it that you do? And Mm -hmm. I tried not to decide that too quickly. And I'm so glad that I didn't. Because there were a lot of things that, for instance, deeds. I just didn't do deeds for the longest time. I was afraid of them. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't find a class that really suited me. And I kept asking people, how do you get good at deeds? And everybody kept saying, just do them. Just do deeds. So I just started doing deeds. And it took a long time. Now they're my favorite. I love Mm. deeds. And I... Sometimes you've got to keep your horizons open and your options open for things that you don't imagine you would enjoy or that you would want to specialize in. Because sometimes that, that thing that is really exciting is, is hidden from you at first. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would say that to a person who wanted to become a professional is to really keep your options open, but also... Proceed thoughtfully. 
going down a rabbit hole education wise is not always a good idea. It's mm-hmm. good to be thoughtful about your education. It's good to be thoughtful about where you're getting it and how you're getting it and whether you're getting your money's worth from where you're getting it. I also got some advice from somebody who said that you may not think you're ready, but you're probably more ready than you think. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's good to take a little leap. And sometimes it's good to take to accept a challenge that seems like it might be a little bit over your head and to work right. toward it. And I found that to be true. And when you became a full-time professional, were you uh, still working or did you just kind of take that leap and say, okay, this is it. I'm just becoming a professional genealogist. Other mothers will sympathize, I think, with this in that I was doing, I, I decided to be a genealogist and I decided to pursue being a professional. And most of the time that I have to spend was at 2 a.m. when my mm. kids were asleep. I was sneaking in little chunks of time to get mm. better at it and to just explore. And as my children got older and more independent, I increased that slowly. So I didn't have one dropping off point where I woke up and said, okay, now I have the time to devote to it. It was uh, a slow process and very Mm -hmm. gradual for me. Interesting. And so you just published your second book, I believe, uh, The Maynard North and DeForest Families, A Story of Immigration, Industry, and Community. So tell us a little bit about that book and the inspiration behind it. The client for the book was Holbrook Davis. Mm -hmm. And Holbrook is unfortunately no longer with us. Mm -hmm. He was able to read the final draft before the book was finished. So it's a bit of a bittersweet publication. Mm -hmm. He wanted, his wife had died a few years ago and he wanted something about her family Mm -hmm. and asked if I would be able to publish a real book about her family. And we spent a little time deciding whether or not it would be interesting enough. And it was a great lesson because it turns out that everything is interesting enough. Yes. So she had two family lines that were very famous. There was one to the Mayflower passenger, Francis Cook, and there was another Beardsley line that was uh, very well known in New England. And I said, let's do the other two lines. Let's do the ones that no one is talking about. And so we focused the book on on two immigrants, Charles North and Isaac Maynard, and they both came from the United Kingdom to the United States in the 1830s. I and these are from two different sides of her family. Ironically, they came to the United States within 4 months of each other. Each person came from a a situation in which they had he had to come with close to nothing and start over Mm -hmm. and use some ingenuity and try to figure out how to make a living. And both men were enormously successful. Mm. It was a really fun book to write and it was exciting to research. Isaac Maynard ended up being part of the amazing industrial revolution in Utica, New York, where they started to, Utica specialized in textile mills, and Mm -hmm. Isaac Maynard 
became part of that. And his descendants were also the owners of the textile mills there. And then Charles North became a tanner. And I did not understand how the tanning of leather happened. Mm -hmm. What an exciting thing. Um, The tanning of leather relies on hemlock trees, which use the bark of the hemlock tree. And that's the chemical that tans leather. and And it's a very, very complex system of soaking the leather and combing it out. And Charles North came kind of as an apprentice Mm-hmm. and learned that trade and then he was able to buy his own major tanning facility in Oswego, New York. So both men were in America at the time that and Isaac Maynard was he started out in soap and candles before he went into textiles. Both men came at the time in America when small home trades were how things got done and mm-hmm. For instance, you would have a tannery down the street. And if you needed some leather, you would take your hides down there and they'd make the leather and they'd give it back to you. And so it was a small, small business. And right at about right as the Industrial Revolution kicked up, Mm -hmm. those small home businesses, the people involved in them were able to convert convert to bigger operations. And so Isaac Maynard ended up being the head of a huge mill and Charles North ended up owning this very large tannery and they were interested it was interesting in their lives but also interesting just in the story of america as it kind of changed from that small town thing to this bigger industrialized nation and so with this being a client project and you did the research for the book how long was that process like doing the research and then writing the book even though i know you kind of write as you go but i do so we did this one quickly Um, my client, when he hired me was 99 and he said, Jennifer, I don't have a lot of time left, so I need you to do this quickly. So we did it in a year. I wouldn't recommend doing that again. I don't know if I would ever do that again. The other books that I've written, and I'm working on one now for the Newbury Street Press, which is the publishing arm of the New England Historic Genealogical Society. Those usually, the writing process is about a year and a half or two years. Mm-hmm. And that's just the writing, and then it goes into production. And so, speaking of the current projects, can you tell us anything about the book you're working on right now? I wish I could. Um, usually, I usually they they would like to keep it under wraps for the moment. Okay. I have quite a I have quite a few that I've been working on for them, though. So I will have a new one published very soon. And do you work on multiple things at one time, or are you just like I'm going to write this, get it done, and then move on to the next? Can you manage multiple? projects. I've done both things for them. Um, Sometimes, like right now, I'm currently working on one book. There are other times when they have hired me to do, they have a book that's mostly straight genealogy, and they would like a few sidebars that are more color and, and biographical narrative. The book I'm working now, I can say, is going to be half Onentoffel, a very extensive Onentoffel, and then the other half is my writing about certain people in the Onentoffel, mm-hmm. focusing on, I think, six different people. Okay. And then there are other times when they'll say, we need 10 hours for you to, you know, do just a little bit of writing on this one. We just need a little extra to get it over the hump or whatever. So I, I enjoy both scenarios. And I think mm-hmm. it's nice to, it's nice to 
flip back and forth between those because I think after you do a whole book, you sort of want some little projects to refresh mm-hmm. yourself because a whole book is a big ordeal, which you know. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, so would you say, what are your other kind of interests outside of genealogy? I am actually a Reiki master and oh. I, I, um, I am a big yoga enthusiast. I do a lot of yoga, very much into to holistic health and that kind of thing. And my daughter is a yoga instructor. So she and I enjoy doing yoga together. And so do you find that helps you when you have maybe a tough project you're working on or anything like that, that gets you back to your kind of center? Absolutely. And I think that writing, writing is very emotional. It takes a lot out of you. You, It really requires your creativity. It requires your intuition and it requires a lot Mm -hmm. out of who you are. So I think it's really important to have an outlet. I try to have kind of a creative outlet and I really enjoy doing work with paper, with patterned paper. Mm. I do a lot of origami and that kind of thing. I think you need to have your brain be able to sort of go off every once in a while, turn off every Mm -hmm. once in a while. And the yoga and the Reiki also really is very centering. It's important when you are doing this sort of a creative thing especially if you're on a deadline, it's important to really take care of the other parts of yourself because it can mm-hmm, really, really mm-hmm. take over. And I think that that is, that is key. I started meditating uh, during the pandemic, which I try to do it every day. I'm, you know, I'm working on it, but it does definitely turn things around for you, right? In, in your mind and everything. So I can appreciate that. Um, I wanted to get back to, you're talking about being professional genealogist, but also a question around sort of, do you have like genealogy buddies that you kind of, you know, talk to about maybe it's a, a project you're working on or marketing or getting new clients? Do you have a group of folks like that in your circle? Yes. I am a member of the APG okay. New England chapter. And I was president of the New England chapter for several years. It is, there are a hundred of us. I have quite a few friends within that chapter who all live in New England near me. We sometimes see each other in person. Sometimes it's on Zoom. That has been a really, really supportive group for me. And we are, as a group, still, I'm on the program committee still. And we are trying to um, facilitate smaller groups within our group. I think, I think that in particular with writing, it's important to have a group that, that you can lean on. I, I am not a speaker, but I understand this about speaking also. Sometimes you just need to have somebody else mm-hmm. take a look at what you're doing. And, and it, it helps so much to know when you have a, a community like that of people who are willing to do that mm-hmm. for each other. And we've been, we've been talking in the New England chapter of, of just saying, hey, I'm speaking at this conference and I'm a little nervous about it. At two o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to be online. Anybody who wants to come and critique is welcome. I think those sorts of opportunities are so important. I, I cherish my genealogy friends. And I think that we're supportive of each other and we're also able to be mm-hmm. honest with each other. And that is really mm-hmm. valuable. I think that most successful people say that they have that kind of a right. of a fallback. 
and um, I, I certainly work hard to keep mine um, healthy and happy and to stay in touch with people. Well, I guess, is uh, what other tips would you give anyone who is starting out in genealogy? Not as a professional, but let's say someone's listening and they're just interested and they were like, oh, I'm going to do my family history sort of like, what tips would you give them? I would say start with low-hanging fruit right away. As much as I write as I go, I also cite as I go. And I did the exact same thing that many, many people did, which was to do my genealogy and have zero citations and not remember where I got any of it. And I think if you're in that position, you can know that you're not alone and start all over mm -hmm. again. And, and I did that, a genealogy do-over, where you make sure that you get your citations in there. I think it's good to start with what you mm -hmm. know and what's familiar and move out from there, make that mm -hmm. your center. And I also think it's just vitally important to talk to other people who are doing the same thing that you're doing. And again, conferences are just so good for that. I, I think it's wonderful that there are so many webinars and so much information out there in terms of education and genealogy. And I worry a little bit that there's not as much talking as mm. there could be. And I love, I'm, for APG, I'm the chairperson of the Professional Development Committee, and we are trying to have more networking mm -hmm. opportunities in addition to doing our webinars because I think it's just very, very important to share what you're doing. One of the things that the New England chapter did during COVID was to have little, little Zoom meetings, and we called them Lunch Bunch, and it was just for an hour at lunchtime, and you we would just have a question. What's the newest book on your shelf? And everybody would go around and talk about it. And then we'd just chat. And, and I learned so much from that about what people were reading and people talking about what they were doing. I think that it's just so vital to have that kind of a mm -hmm. network. And I think genealogists are more introverts, at least what I've heard people say, right? So I think it. I think networking may not necessarily, I mean, genealogists obviously do network, but I'm thinking that it may not come natural for a lot of folks. Yes, and I am a big introvert. And so I think that's a, that's a hurdle for everybody. The beauty is, is that we're all, like not all of us, but a lot of us are introverts. And so it's, you know, you're not alone, but you are not energized in being in a community until you really are mm -hmm. part of it. And my husband is a very outgoing person and he's a banker and he's been to a lot of conferences. And he said to me one day, you know, oh, gosh, you're so tired. You're going to this conference. And I said, oh, it'll be fine. And I got home and I said, you know, I just looked at everybody. I was standing there. They invited me to lunch. And I said, no, you know, I think I'm just going to go up to my room and put my feet up for a few hours and I'll see you guys after lunch. And his mouth dropped open. You did what? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, what did they say? And I said, they were like, okay. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, it's not the normal crowd. No, yeah. I mean, I, I was in software sales for eight years. So I'm very, I'm not an introvert. I think most people know that. But, um, but yeah, I would be the same with your, with your husband. A lot of times I had to learn that that's what people did at genealogy conferences. Because I'm like, 
Wait, you're going back to your room? Like, why shouldn't we be hanging at the bar? Let's take a walk over here. Let's do that. You know, like whatever. It was kind of a, it was definitely a learning curve for me with that. Jennifer, I do appreciate you coming to Conversation with Kenyatta today. I am excited to see what comes next for you, although we didn't get a lot of details, but I'm sure we'll see it. And um, yeah, and it's been really great to talk about writing and the writing process, because I think that's really important. And some people struggle with that sometimes, myself included. So uh, hearing your take on it um, has been great. So thank you so much for coming to Conversation with Kenyatta. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash kenyattadb, and on Twitter at kenyattadb. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry.